Hey everyone, welcome back to part two of Martin and I's conversation about how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. In this part of the episode, we're going to be talking uh, about some more unusual examples of how the New Testament uses the Old Testament, and we'll do our best to explain them. Hopefully this will be helpful to you in your Bible study in the future. Thanks for joining us. Hey everybody, this is part two of Martin and I's conversation about how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to get maybe a little bit more into the weeds in this one, and hopefully some of it will be helpful to your Bible study in the future. Thanks for joining us. The other form of prophecy that we really wanted to kind of cover was when Jewish believers don't agree that it should be messianic. And this one, it's actually going to talk about my favorite Old Testament prophecy, and that is in Isaiah chapter 53. So you get this, this poem, basically, that describes Jesus' death. If you're a Christian, that's what you believe it is anyways. It describes Jesus' death, and it actually acts as both an earthly description and a spiritual description. And so it talks about how he's going to be pierced, he's going to be crushed, he's, you know, these things. But then it also includes that he's doing so for the forgiveness of sins, that he's doing so to cover up transgressions of the people. He's it it talks about this in both ways, which is really cool, first of all. And as a huge nerd, I love it. And so there's a lot of information I have on this one. But what's really interesting about this is Isaiah 53 is a part of what's called the Suffering Servant Songs, and there's four of them. This is this is where the Christian interpretation comes in. Uh, through the four different songs, we see a couple of things that don't necessarily disqualify Israel as the suffering servant, but it really makes it hard to approve of it, basically. Uh, and that's how the, the Jews are going to interpret it, is that the nation of Israel is this suffering servant. Because at their time, they're seeing... Uh, their nation is going through exile. Their nation is being oppressed. They're put through slavery. They're seeing these things that really kind of fit with what Isaiah is saying. But it's not going to 100% agree. As Isaiah is writing this, he is prophesying forward to the Messiah, to Jesus. The Jewish believers, especially post-Jesus' time, are going to say, no, this is not about the Messiah. Because if you read it like the Messiah is supposed to do this, then you basically see Jesus. And it's it's pretty clear when you look at it in that light. If you're, if you're looking at it and you know what happened to Jesus already, you go, oh, that's, that's really close. Like, that's, that's pretty darn close, actually, to what happened. Uh, I would, I would fully back that. But, for the most part, the Jewish believers don't read it that way, and it's so that they can interpret it the way that they want to. Uh, you also will probably hear, if you look up Isaiah 53, uh, like videos on YouTube or anything, you'll probably see someone talking about how this is the forbidden chapter, this is the one that's not supposed to be read, uh, and that's, that's because they have some understanding of what happens to Jesus, and they go, oh, that's really close. But the real linchpin to this is when you jump to Acts chapter 8, um, you'll see Philip actually take the opportunity to 
connect these. And so in Acts chapter 8, Philip sees an Ethiopian eunuch, which um, knowing what a eunuch is, I don't know why they necessarily needed to ex tell us that, but, you know, it's important. Uh, it, it It is important because uh, eunuchs were trusted around important women because the idea was by making someone a eunuch, you would remove their sex drive, which is actually not how that works at all. But that's what they thought. And, uh, and so they would make someone a eunuch in certain cultures so you could be trusted around influential women like queens and princesses and whatnot. And often eunuchs would be very high ranking and influential people in the government, not in the line to, to inherit anything directly but they would have great influence and riches by themselves, which obviously they would not be able to pass on to children because they couldn't have kids. So that's why it's important that he's a eunuch because in Ethiopia at that time, that would hint that he's probably an advisor to the king or queen, which is significant. And so uh, he's talking to this eunuch who is reading Isaiah 53. And he says, I just, I don't understand this. And so Philip comes up and explains that this is Jesus. That's, that's what's happening. It's describing Jesus's death and what it does for us. And the eunuch basically, after talking to Philip, says, I want to be baptized. I want to follow Jesus. And Philip says, oh, okay, well, we'll like, we'll like baptize you somewhere. And the eunuch goes, there's water over there. Let's, let's go. And he goes, okay, cool. I guess we're, we're baptizing you now. When you get to studies of the New Testament and Old Testament, the best way to figure out not necessarily the intended meaning, but the final meaning of a passage, especially in the Old Testament, is to see how it's used in the New Testament. And so essentially for us believers, we would look at uh, the way that Philip talks about this passage and say, it's messianic, done. But there's, there is a little bit of controversy as to the original intended meaning of it. And so that's kind of my like spiel is. Yeah. And it's important to keep in mind, like you're going to hear people claim, Hey, this prophecy doesn't actually mean that Christians just took it out of context. Like with the suffering servant Psalms, you'll hear like Bart Ehrman, very famous um, anti-apologist. I guess I would call him famous. He calls himself agnostic. Uh, very like anti uh, organized Christianity. He came out of like evangelicalism, went to a very famous evangelical college, very well educated, very, very smart person. And he'll point to, well, the Jews don't interpret the suffering servant passages to be about Jesus. They'll say it's about Israel as a whole. And he'll point to parts of the suffering servant passages that seem to not be fulfilled by Jesus. And I think part of the response to this for Christians is something called a double fulfillment prophecy, which is not, not something that gets referenced a ton in churches, unfortunately, like on Sunday mornings, but it should. A double fulfillment prophecy is basically the idea that when a prophecy is issued, it may have both an immediate and a non-immediate application. So a prophecy might mean something in the day and age it's issued, and mean something centuries later and both be equally true. So a good example of it also from Isaiah is Isaiah 7, which is the famous virgin birth passage. Uh, Isaiah 7 verse 14 
says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin or young woman in Hebrew will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him or we will call him Emmanuel. And this passage is obviously applied to Jesus. Now, it's never directly quoted so far as I know. It's never directly quoted in the New Testament. But the theme of a virgin will give birth is kept in both Matthew and Luke very explicitly with those Jesus birth narratives that both point out explicitly that Mary is a virgin. She's betrothed. She has not committed adultery. She has not committed fornication. She is a virgin. She is called a virgin in both stories. And so they don't quote it, but they reference it really clearly. And they see this as further proof that Jesus is Messiah. But the immediate application in context, Isaiah is talking to King Ahaz and says, this is going to be a sign to you, King Ahaz, that some woman that is apparently present, which there's a couple different ideas of who the woman might have been, might have been Isaiah's wife. It might have been a relative of Ahaz's. It might have been King Hezekiah's mother. Like there's a lot of different ideas from different commentators. But that some young woman, when she has a baby, by the time that baby's an adult, the, the enemies that threaten you now will no longer threaten Israel. Like, that's the immediate application. But Christians come back to it later and say, actually, they're, like that's true, but there's a second meaning. The second meaning is that our Messiah will be born from a human virgin woman. And that will be one of the signs that he is special, that he is divine, that he is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. So this might apply to any number of prophecies in the Old Testament where there's an immediate application. Maybe the suffering servant passages do to some extent speak of Israel's suffering as a suffering servant on behalf of Yahweh. But that does not exclude the possibility that it also refers to Jesus. And if you look at the New Testament and you think that the New Testament is more or less trustworthy and that it is inspired, well... Luke explicitly writes in Acts that Isaiah, the Isaiah scroll, speaks extensively of the Messiah. And it doesn't mention a specific passage. It just says he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. And Philip talks to this Ethiopian eunuch and says, see, there's all these prophecies in Isaiah. Maybe Isaiah 53 is one of them. Maybe Isaiah 7 was one of them. Whatever. There's all these prophecies in Isaiah that talk about the Messiah. And here's this guy that we think is the Messiah that fulfilled all these prophecies. So yeah, those prophecies were about things in Isaiah's day, but they're also about things in our day. It's both. So double fulfillment prophecies, super important when you're trying to decide like, well, this doesn't seem like the original context. Well, it's not, but the original context and Jesus, they both fit. So if, it, if, if both shoes fit, then like wear them. That's probably the least common prophecy in the Old Testament is one that both has an immediate fulfillment and one that has a later fulfillment in the new Testament or later in the old Testament, you know? And you um, also can't tell if there's going to be a later fulfillment, like until it happens. So yeah. nobody was looking at Isaiah seven and going, yep, there's another meaning here. You just got to wait for it. Except I, and I might be wrong about this. I think there was a small community of Jews that did expect a Messiah to be born from a virgin woman, but it was not a majority view. I'm confident in saying it wasn't a majority view. Um, and I know like, for example, it wasn't a majority view that the Messiah would be divine in nature, but like the Essenes believed that they would. So it's not like unheard of, but it's not super common. No one was sitting there going, Isaiah seven is about the Messiah until it happened. And the Christians were looking at their old Testament and going, wait a minute. 
that thing happened twice. So you really can't recognize it until it happens, much like you can't tell if a prophecy is a false prophecy until it doesn't happen. The last one that we really had to talk about was an Old Testament ideal. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I want to talk about that. Um, Sermon on the Mount is a good example that you put down in our little shared planning document of appealing to. Yeah, we actually used a shared document instead of each having our own. Um, (laughs) We're growing up. Uh, It appeals to a lot of Old Testament, not only Old Testament teachings, but Old Testament traditions, like rabbinic traditions around the Old Testament. And it alludes to a... um, to underlying ethics, or rather, I guess it would be more appropriate to say both the rabbinic traditions and the Old Testament laws themselves allude to this like underlying ethic, like underlying truths about God and God's design for people. And that sounds like really like new age and weird. But when you're dealing with God, if God is a all or nothing being, right? He is justice. He is mercy. Whatever he is, he is all that. And whatever he is not, he is none of that. So if he's good, he is all good. And there is no, no, he's, he is light and in him is no darkness, right? We shouldn't be surprised that when God gives commandments, whether it's something like don't murder, don't commit adultery or something weirder, like uh, don't wear fabric that is, or clothing made of, of mixed fabrics, which is a, a mosaic commandment these commandments are going to be based on something in God's character, even if it's kind of convoluted and weird and culturally specific. So don't murder. Why? Because God is the author of all life. And so, I mean, even going back into Genesis and you see like the first murder with Cain killing his brother Abel. And this is seen as a a, a horrific offense against the way that things should be because humans were not designed to die, much less kill one another. And then when Cain commits this murder and becomes the first murderer in the, in the Genesis narrative, uh, God says that the, the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the, from the soil, from the ground. And Cain is distraught and thinking, oh, someone's going to kill me. And it, it creates this big like roller coaster of death and murder and, and uncreation. But it's against God's character. God is the author of life. He's the author of order. He makes order out of chaos. He partners with human beings. Uh, rather than destroying them, he works with them and builds them up and gives them a commission to create more life and more order. And and murder goes against that. So when Jesus is speaking in, in the Sermon on the Mount and giving commandment after commandment after commandment, you know, don't uh, don't murder and don't commit adultery and don't look at someone with lust in your eyes and don't insult your brother or sister and all these commandments. He's not just trying to be a killjoy. He's trying to say you have this God who has these characteristics and I'm trying to teach you in a very meaningful way to live in alignment with these ideals, with these characteristics of your God. And two of the most important ones are going to be Hesed and Shalom, which I know Martin doesn't love to talk about because he's hipster and he likes talking about things other people don't talk about. But do you want to give us like a quick summary of what those two words mean? Just like super like quick and dirty. What what is hesed? What is shalom? How do you actually pronounce them? Because I don't do Hebrew, that sort of thing. I barely do Hebrew. I don't make the like guttural sounds. So I would also pronounce it hesed and shalom. But 
uh, the like dictionary definition of each one. Hesed actually like is really hard to translate because it's this weird concept, but usually it's translated as like loving kindness or something along those lines. Um, but not grace or mercy because those have different words with different ideas. And shalom is usually translated as peace. They both have underlying ideas. And so hesed basically is like how God feels about us or what God does for us. And so we see it, like I said, it's more of a concept than like a word, but the best way to see it is to look at how God treats his people. Uh, I love the book of Hosea for this, right? Hosea gets told to marry a prostitute, and then he does, and then the prostitute cheats on him. What a surprise, right? And God says, forgive, forgive her. And he does, and he takes her back, and then she goes and does the same thing, and it happens a couple times. And it's this continual, it's not necessarily forgiveness or grace, like I said, but it's this continual ownership. You are mine. You, you know, you are my people. It's this idea that no matter what you do, he's always there. And he's always going to show his loving kindness. And shalom is, like I said, peace, but it's not necessarily peace. Like there's no war going on. It's more of an internal idea. Uh, you'll hear people all the time talk about there's, there's peace inside of me, or, like, I am at peace right now. And it's this idea that, like, nothing is really, nothing is conflicting with you. Like, you don't feel like you're upset with people. Like, this continual idea, and God is the provider of that. That's the important part of it. It's not like, I'm just not fighting with anyone right now, so I'm at peace. It's, I think Paul describes it in Philippians 4.13 really well. It's contentment with what you have, right? I, you know, I might know that I need some things, but I also know that God will provide it. It's anti-worry. Yeah. And I would even like, just tag a little bit more on, uh, has said has a lot to do with how God will keep his covenants, even when his people won't like that's when Martin says like how God treats his people consistently, he treats his people by saying, you know, you've, he compares it to adultery you've cheated on me with other gods and other ideals and morals that are not from me, but still I'm going to have mercy on you, but still I'm going to have grace for you because of my said, I'm going to offer you this, this grace. I'm going to continue to keep my end of the bargain, even though you keep breaking our deal. And Shalom is yeah, not just the absence of conflict, but things functioning the way they're supposed to. Uh, Tim Mackey translates it wholeness a lot, which I think is a really good way of dealing with it. And actually, it can be used that way in like pedantic conversations too. Like a wall can have shalom when it's like not been destroyed. It's like the same Hebrew root. So it's human beings being whole, human beings functioning the way that they were designed in obedience to God and alignment with his values. And when the... New Testament talks about like Christian concepts like agape love that is connected to by loving someone and serving their best interests, no matter how they treat you, loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you. You are modeling God's said. God has done that for you. God did that for Israel. And now you're doing it for others. You're loving them. You are having said for them. When you decide to maintain a marriage with a 
unbeliever who does not approve of your faith, but is willing to remain with you. Paul deals with this specific situation, right, in his epistles. When you do that, you're going above and beyond what others would probably be willing to do as a Christian. You are encouraging shalom by keeping the marriage contract. You're modeling his said still, but you're also encouraging shalom by keeping that marriage contract unbroken despite disagreement. You are building shalom, wholeness in the world. And so the New Testament, when it teaches morals to you, it's still going to rely on the same timeless truths about who God is and what he wants that the Old Testament sits on. And that's why Martin and I both would say, like, we wouldn't go as far as, like, say, Andy Stanley, even though I really appreciate Andy Stanley, where he says famously we should unhitch from the Old Testament and use it for inspiration, but not for doctrine. We'd both say, no, you can get doctrine from the Old Testament. It's maybe a little trickier. But you can get doctrine because God is unchanging. And the Old Testament is going to teach the same truths about God that the New Testament does. They just might be a little bit harder for modern Westerners to see. God still has his said, God still has shalom. God is still unchanging. God is still good. That's what we have for you guys today. We appreciate you guys going through and trudging through really every piece and getting kind of what we're talking about. So if you appreciate what we're doing, if you like listening to us or you just think that I'm really funny, you can give us five stars on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, and we will look forward to seeing you guys on our next episode.